日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へ Hey, welcome back to the Samurai Archives podcast. This is Chris here with Travis and Nate. Hello. Hi there. And、uh, today we're going to talk about Japan's self defense forces, or the JSDF, as it were, also known as the Jietai in Japanese. And Nate here worked with the、uh, JSDF for about seven years in Japan,、uh, two of which w a s as a liaison working at a regional JSDF headquarters. So he's our resident expert on the situation. Our resident expert on the topic of the Jietai. So, I guess today we'll be talking about the history of the Japanese Self Defense Force and probably、uh, get into what they do now or what the situation is with the JSDF now. So, with that said,、uh, Nate, would you like to give us or at least start with a brief history of the JSDF?、Um, sure.、Uh, well, I mean, I think most of our listeners, well, at least I hope they're familiar with kind of post war, a little bit of. Post war history, but、uh, I'll give a small background just because this, this is a lot more recent than we normally focus on on the podcast. So,、yeah, history、um, is su- history. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, I suppose there's a chance people stop reading at the Meiji period. I know I certainly do. <laughs>、um, but、uh, yeah, no, anyway, okay, so I, I, everybody should be familiar kind of with、uh, that whole World War II thing. It was kind of a big deal in the,、uh, the, the 1940s. And with the defeat of Japan in, in World War II, you know, the U.S., or it was a U.S. led occupation,、uh, pretty much it was a U.S. occupation of Japan, and、uh, the U.S. government or the U.S. military took over the,、uh, the Japanese government uh, with uh, General Douglas MacArthur in charge. Basically, he ran Japan for about you know, five years or so、um, until, until something happened in Korea, and he got kind of a little busy with that. But Anyway,、uh, as part of the aftermath of World War II,、uh, with the,、uh, the Japanese government、uh, taken over by the United States,、uh, the U.S. wrote、uh, them a new constitution. And、uh, part of it was that the U.S. did not want、uh, Japan to have an army, any sort of military, because they didn't want anything like World War II to happen again. And of course, racial and social ideas being what they were in the 1940s. Uh, you know, the, the, the idea was that the Japanese, of course, as a race, were、uh, very warlike. And,、uh, you know, you just look at their history of the samurai and so forth, right?、Uh, so, you know, we can't trust them to, to behave on their own. So we'll just we'll write this constitution for them and we'll just write out the right to have a military completely. You know,、uh, I, I do so, want to,、uh, in, in regards to that specifically, how much of that、uh, sort、sure. of self defense only aspect was, came from the Japanese themselves?、Uh, I mean, you get the, get the impression after the war, later on, they, they really sort of eschewed the,、uh, they, they wanted nothing to do with the, the sort of the warlike past. So, did we'll any of that? that.、Oh, okay. And then another question, of course, on the same、mm-hmm. would be、uh, was how much of this was to you know, appease the, their neighbors? Because I'm sure they didn't want the Japanese to have a military force either. I'm sure that was, that was in there、uh, certainly later on, but、uh, you know, right now, it's, it, at least in, with the 1947 Constitution, it was,、uh, it was the U.S.、Uh, that, was, that was calling the shots and doing it because that's what they felt. So they wrote Article 9, which 
to summarize it, for, uh, forever renounces war as an instrument for settling international disputes and declares that Japan will never again maintain land, sea, or air forces or other war potential, uh, which at the time meant you could, they couldn't have any sort of military capability, uh, defensive or otherwise. They just, they just weren't going to have it. And we liked this because we didn't want the Japanese to, to have any, any military. So uh, that continued on until about June 25th, 1950, at which time North Korea invaded South Korea. And the Americans realized, hey, maybe it would be a good idea if you know, we didn't also have to protect Japan completely. So uh, at that point, you know, we went back and forth uh, in 1952. Uh, the U.S. signed a, a mutual security assistance pact, uh, which was then later adjusted in 1960. But uh, part of that was, uh, you know, uh, the out the outcome of that was the reorganization of a large police, uh, what had been called the National Police Reserve, uh, into uh, the Self Defense Force, and that uh, took place in 1954. Separate land, air and uh, sea forces for purely defensive purposes were created uh, and they were subject to the command of the prime minister. And that was a big, uh, that's a big deal because, you know, of course, prior to world war one and the lead up to world war one, the, the military kind of did its own thing and then eventually took over the government. Hmm. And so it was very important uh, at the, at the time for, uh, well, I mean, it's important today as well, but uh, it was very important for, any form of military capability to be uh, kept underneath uh, civilian control. I guess it, it makes complete sense that they would not have had a self-defense forces yet during the occupation, but I just had never quite thought of it before. So that's kind of interesting, kind of the timeline of that it came about later, you know, in the 50s. Yeah, immediately in 45 or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they had, uh, in 1950, uh, they had uh, they established what uh, was called the National Police Reserve, mm. uh, which was kind of like an you know a defensive force, but termed National Police. I mean, it was almost kind of like a National Guard, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it wasn't very big. It was only about seventy five thousand. With, uh, uh, but you know that that was due to the uh, the outbreak of the Korean War. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the sense that, okay, you know, now the the Americans have to go fight in Korea, so they can't be solely responsible for Japan's uh, defense. So you got to do something, right? And then this, and this kind of goes into what uh, what Chris, your question that you had earlier. This starts kind of a, uh, I mean, this is the beginnings of a situation where over the years the U.S. you know has encouraged, I guess is one way to put it. Uh, more and more active, uh, you know, the expansion of the self-defense force and a more and more active role by the self-defense force. And the Japanese, you know, both the government and the uh, the, the, the populace uh, have resisted that. Uh, and, of course, you know, it's increased. It, it has increased over the decades and, and so forth. But, you know, th- if you think about where Japan was in, in the 1950s, you know, they were less than a decade removed from the complete destruction of their country. Mm. Uh, and we're just, you know, by the time the occupation ends in, in 52, uh, are just coming out of that from the Japanese government's perspective. 
they're in a situation where you know the, the U.S. has written into their constitution that they don't have to, or that uh, that they can't build up any defense capability. Well, if you're trying to rebuild your country, then you look at that as, hey, we don't have to to spend any money on defense capability because America says that they've got us covered. Right. So um, we can we can put money into developing better VCRs right. and better and, better cars. Right. You know, yeah, I mean, initially the money goes into rebuilding Tokyo uh, and eventually goes into all of, all, you know, rebuild, you know, making the economy uh, what it what it ended up becoming by the, uh, the 1980s. So um, that's where it really starts with the whole, you know, the defense budget being limited to underneath uh, under one percent of the, uh, the, the GDP, which, you know, in 1952 isn't really a whole lot, but by 2010 is a massive sum, you know, and, and so forth. But anyway, so yeah, over the course of the next few decades, I guess we, we have this, you know, uh, where, okay. So in 54, they, they establish the self-defense force and, you know, subject to the, to the prime minister, but, uh, yeah, civilian control is very heavily enforced. Um, and then when they they create the names, uh, like we ha- have mentioned, the uh, the name is Jiatai or Self Defense Force, if you translate it literally from mm. Japanese. Uh, and that's the whole, you know they do not call it a military, they do not call it an army. And this is one of the things that a keeps it from appearing, you know, at least for appearances' sake, they're not re remilitarizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and b you know it it keeps it from I mean, because there's a very big argument at this time about whether they should rearm or not. And of course, uh, you know, after the war, the the left or the the anti-militarist crowd uh, is very strong uh, because many people. I mean, the blame for World War II was placed on the military. Hmm. They got us into this, and so we don't want a military. You know, that was a lot of the popular sentiment as to why they didn't want a military was because the military got them into World War II in the first place. So they, you know, there's a lot of popular sentiment that says, well, if we if we have a military again, then that's, you know, they're they're going to do that. So um, part of the ways to avoid, or at least explain it in a way that they can look at it and say, see, we're not violating the constitution that was imposed on us, uh, was by calling it a self defense force. And then they had uh, the other things, um, that, you know, you'll see that the, the certain. Uh, pieces of equipment they they would not weren't allowed to have, um, or or they would call them something different. Like uh, like tanks were were not called tanks. You know, sensha is a tank in Japanese, but they they called them uh, uh, you know something else, like some sort of uh, I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was some sort mm. of a pseudonym in order mm. to like self-propelled armored personnel carrier, which fires something. projectiles or something right <laughs> yeah and just to point out i mean the word sensha literally means like war vehicle so right. i mean it has sen in it yeah so you kind of need to pick something different yeah. battle <laughs> battle vehicle um, right yeah so uh but yeah anyway they so they did in the mid through the you know 50s did uh build up some defensive focused military capability uh and then in 1956, uh, they enact what's called the Atomic Energy Basic Law, 
and which outlines kind of the what's what's commonly known as the three non-nuclear principles, mm. uh, which means that uh, they they will not possess, manufacture, uh, possess or manufacture nuclear weapons. That's one and two, uh, and then number three is allow them to be introduced into its territories. So this becomes a big deal between the U.S. and Japan uh, because. Technically speaking, U.S. ships carrying nuclear weapons uh, were not allowed into port in uh, Japanese ports. Uh, I will not confirm or deny whether that was actually uh, – <laughs> whether <laughs> any incidents happened to take place where that was that was not the case. But hey, whatever. Yeah, okay, right? we won't get into it. Yeah. But yeah, and then you know later Japan later goes on to uh, sign all the non-proliferation uh, agreements and, and and so forth, saying that they will not develop nuclear weapons. Of course, we'll mm. ignore the fact that they have all the capability that they could possibly want to do so. They could uh, put together a, a nuclear uh, stockpile in a very short amount of time. Should the uh, the government decide to do so, I doubt the government's going to decide to do that anytime soon, though. But mm. anyway. Okay, so um, that takes us through the 60s and into the 70s, and it's all kind of the same. But, uh, you know, yeah, they, they're not allowed to go outside of the Japanese borders. They're not allowed to really do much of anything. Uh, and through this time, through the Cold War, they're focused on uh, the Russians primarily uh, mm. because of the perceived Soviet threat. Uh, and the fact that you know the the Soviets had taken two uh, of uh, or a uh, three, I'm sorry, of the uh, the Kuril Islands right off the coast of Hokkaido. Uh, so you know, given the political world political situation at the time, they were everything was focused on you know the Russian threat, which is why all the heaviest Japanese equipment, all their tanks and so forth, were in Hokkaido up until the uh, the 1990s, because hmm. uh, because that's where they anticipated the Russians were going to come. That makes sense. I hadn't thought of that. I mean, I hadn't heard about it or anything. Hmm. Okay, so anyway, until – I mean, the situation pretty much continues like that until the 80s when in uh, Nakasone, uh, if uh, anybody remembers him, uh, was the uh, the prime minister in the, the 80s. He's the uh, – it was under him that the, they broke the 1% uh, barrier uh, in defense spending for the first time, and that was in uh, 1986. And I mean, they did it. It was pretty much, pretty much just like putting it to like 1.1 percent or like 1.05 percent just to do it. You know, of course, Nakasone being LDP and LDP uh, Liberal Democratic Party being uh, more in, in favor of you know, the more conservative party in Japan and more in favor of increasing Japan's security role. You know, that was kind of his big contribution uh, contribution to pushing that along uh, was a. Uh, was pushing the budget over 1% for the first time. And then it's gone over that a, a couple times. And then, yeah, according to Wikipedia here, uh, it says in 2005 it was at about 3% of the national budget. Uh, and then as of uh, 2013, Japan, and a lot of people don't know this, Japan had the fifth largest defense budget in the world, which if you consider the size, you know, women, they're the world's third largest economy as of last year, you know, that the... If you're, even if you're only spending about 3% of your budget on uh, defense, that's still a huge amount compared to most countries. Mm -hmm. and I've, I've heard that number cited many times for people who are, you know, 
worried, concerned, whatever the word may be, afraid right. of, of Japan's remilitarization. Oh my god. But, yeah. <laughs> we, 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 it is we, it is a large amount. Yeah. Um, well, in the the majority of it, uh, and this is anecdotal. I don't have any other, you know, than <laughs> other than my seven years working with the, the Japanese military. I don't have any uh, backing on this, but um, the the vast majority of it goes uh, into uh, research and development. I mean, they spend a lot more on that than they do other things relative to to other countries in, in terms of. Uh, percentage of of their budget and then a lot of it goes into uh, out of the three services that they have they have uh, maritime self-defense force air self-defense force and uh, ground self-defense force Uh, and the vast majority goes into the air and the maritime self-defense forces which makes sense when you think about the fact that japan is an island Uh, and so in terms of its defense, it's more important to control the skies and the seas prior to any enemy getting on the ground. So that that's that's kind of uh, you know their their thought process in terms of, of where the the money goes, um, and it, and it makes sense. Of course, most of my work was with the uh, the ground self defense force, and they would always lament the fact that they were last on the uh, on the priority list in terms of uh, government spending. But you know. Shoot, the U.S. military has, uh, you know, compared to the Japanese military, the U.S. Uh, military spends way much, way more, uh, and uh, you know, we always feel that we don't have enough money. So, everybody's everybody's going to feel the same way. You never have enough money mm-hmm. to do what you want. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, as we get into. You know, just kind of looking at history and hitting the high points. We get into the 90s. You know, 1991, of course, is uh, the the, uh, the Gulf War, Desert Storm, uh, where the U.S. goes into you know, kick Iraq out of Kuwait with a big coalition. Uh, and because of the restrictions on the Japanese uh, military, they aren't able to send anything uh, other than contribute money, which right. is you know, hey, it's the Constitution we wrote, right? You know, we can't really get uh, get all that uh, uh, upset about it, except that we do. Yeah. <laughs> and so they, go ahead. So they didn't. So they didn't send. Sorry, we're talking about the first Gulf War. Correct, nineteen ninety one. Yeah, because in the um, so they didn't send any uh, sort of um, rebuilding troops or, or medical troops or anything like that at that time. No, just they money. Sent, they mm. sent no no people. Interesting. Okay. Um, and course we you know got uh, um, like i said we uh, we and other yeah. countries but mostly the u.s uh said hey you know and of course this is right at the tail end of uh, of the bubble so japan is you know huge on the economic stage uh and trying to become a a world player uh politically and so our response to them is basically hey look if you you know want to be as important as you think you are, you've got to do a little bit more than just write a big check for, mm. uh, for, for world, for, uh, you know, global security. So, um, the next year, uh, Japan enacted, uh, what was called, uh, the UN peacekeeping cooperation law, uh, in June of 1992, the diet passed this and it uh, permitted SDF forces to participate in UN, uh, medical, uh, and, uh, you know, reconstruction, 
policing, election monitoring, those sorts of, of UN-sponsored uh, uh, missions. So that was really the first legal action that allowed uh, members of the SDF to go outside of Japan and participate in any form of international operation. So yeah, so that I mean, you know, that's that's a you know kind of an example of what I was talking about before, where um, you had you know Japan doesn't do stuff and then gets pressure from from the U.S. its biggest ally, uh, and then they say okay, well, then they go back and kind of change how they're how they're doing things, and you know by the 1990s. Uh, the domestic debate about the legality of the SDF uh, had kind of died down enough to to make these changes possible, I guess is the right way to put it. So, yeah, they start doing uh, UN peacekeeping missions. They went to Cambodia and for, uh, um, I believe it was mine removal, Mozambique. And a couple of other places, and then in you know we we hit into the 2000s, and of course the U.S. gets involved in um, the global war on terrorism, uh, and uh, eventually goes into Iraq. So of course, as part of the the coalition uh, in Iraq, we we turn to our Japanese allies and say, you know, hey, we want you to to send troops as well. And so this time, uh, because of different various law changes and so forth, and also because of the, the domestic political situation in Japan at the time with uh, Prime Minister Koizumi, uh, Koizumi Junichiro, uh, being the prime minister. Our listeners may recognize a picture of him because he's the one with the, uh, the the crazy white mane of hair. Uh, yeah, uh, Koizumi was uh, the prime minister, and he had immense public popularity. So... Uh, and he, he was Liberal Democratic Party, very uh, strong on uh, defense and security issues and increasing the ability of the J JSDF to uh, to go do things. Uh, and he was able to push this kind of stuff through because people liked him. So in 2005, uh, they send a deployment to uh, Iraq. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've met the first commander of the unit uh, of, of the deployment, the, fir the first unit that went to Iraq was at the time a, a, a Colonel uh, Bansho, uh, Bansho Koichiro. Uh, and I know him, <laughs> I've met him as a Major General uh, Bansho when he was the commandant of the Japanese officer candidate school. Um, I used to go speak there every, for every class rotation that went through. Uh, and give a briefing. So I met him a few times, but um, which is cool. But uh, but yeah, they so they go and of course they have very strict limitations on what they can do. They sent medical and engineering, construction uh, and water for pur purification uh, assets, and they you know they could not fire. Uh, even in self-defense without receiving orders. And, I mean, it was very, very strict. Um, so, you know, they were, they were sent down to uh, – they were in the Samawa area, which was very uh, safe, relatively speaking, location. And uh, there were no Japanese casualties caused by enemy contact. So all in all, it was a very successful uh, first deployment. But it was the first time since uh, the end of World War II that – 
Japanese troops had been a, uh, abroad in any sort of uh, force. So it was a big step for them. Well, and then, I mean, from that, you know, I mean, we could get we could get into uh, debates. You know, they, they came back from Iraq in 2006. Uh, and, uh, you know, the bottom line is they, they've, they've done a lot of uh, smaller uh, deployments since then. I mean, I've known Japanese uh, ground self-defense force personnel who've been in Nepal, um, who've been in East Timor or Timor-Leste, uh, who've been in, uh, you know, Syria. And the Golan Heights, uh, and you know they've they've gone. They, most of these are UN peacekeeping operations that they have participated in, or or uh, humanitarian operations uh, in various places. But they they do more and more. Um, Japanese uh, uh, the the Diet passed a, a bill in two thousand and nine uh, that uh, on uh, anti piracy operations, which allowed the uh, the the Navy to do, or I'm sorry, maritime self defense force. Uh, to do uh, anti-piracy operations, and actually, it, it was necessary for them to be allowed to protect non-Japanese vessels. So, say for instance, you know, they were puttering about down in the, uh, you know, in Southeast Asia uh, on a shipping lane and came across a uh, a ship from Thailand that was being hijacked by by pirates. Uh, prior to 2009, they could not. They could just sit there and watch it. They couldn't do anything about it. Uh, and as of uh, 2009, the, the they w- they would have been able to uh, intervene uh, and uh, take down the pirates in order to protect the uh, the shipping. So yeah, and they actually have in Djibouti uh, a uh, self defense force uh, facility uh, that they use as a base for anti piracy operations. Interesting. So, um, and then they, you know, they do kind of um, disaster relief operations and so forth. Uh, they've gone to Haiti, Indonesia, and, and and so on, which, you know, makes sense because one of their, their, I mean, their largest domestic mission is disaster relief operations in Japan. And of course, uh, you know, you look at '95 uh, with the Kobe earthquake, uh, and then uh, also the uh, the sarin gas attacks. Uh, by uh, Aum Shinrikyo in the uh, Tokyo subway. It was the uh, JGSDF, the Ground Self-Defense Force, that did the uh, the cleanup uh, of everywhere that had been uh, hit with sarin gas. Uh, and then all the way up to, I mean, you know, there, there's there's lots of other uh, natural disasters that have happened up to, you know, 2011, the Tohoku, the, the Great East Japan uh, earthquake, and then subsequent tsunami. Uh, the self-defense force were was the uh, a major part of the the response and relief efforts and the evacuations, uh, and again it was the uh, primarily the ground self-defense force that was handling the operations to uh, contain uh, the uh, the nuclear uh, accident at, at the uh, the Fukushima reactor site. So, um, so yeah, so that's kind of SDF in a nutshell in terms of history and, and operations. So where do you want to go now? Okay, so we, we, you've talked a little bit about you know what they're doing nowadays, sort of how their powers have been more or less extended a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my question would be, uh, I guess, worst case scenario, per the letter of the law, as it were, I guess, let's, let's say as it's written today or as it's understood today, what, what are the specific situations where the JSDF could go and do like a military action or a war, war action? Um, well, right now, according to 
their you know the, their legal mandates. Uh, it it is only when it is strictly in defense of Japanese territory uh, or Japanese nationals, Japanese citizens. So they, as a matter of fact, this is a big, huge debate right now, uh, ongoing, and it's probably the next thing that's going to be challenged legally and, and may change. But uh, right now, uh, they cannot practice what is called um, collective self-defense or collective defense. So, for instance, for example, you know, the the U.S. and Japan have a have a have an alliance. You know, we have a a, a mutual defense uh, treaty, which means that you know they protect us, we protect them, uh, so to speak. You know, if if either one of us is in is in a war, um, you know, they're they're supposed to. We, if somebody attacked Japan, the U.S. would automatically be, would automatically uh, act to help protect Japan. Well, that doesn't work the same way for you know the Japanese in the sense that they're because their laws restrict them to only uh, protecting the territory of Japan or Japanese citizens. They'll they can act to protect U.S. forces that are inside Japanese borders, but they can't do anything outside of Japanese borders. So for instance, just to, to kind of give a clear example, let's say that there's, you know, an American ship and a, uh, and a Japanese ship that are uh, just outside Japanese territorial waters, maybe a couple miles outside territorial waters and a ship from a third country. We won't give any particular one, but to let just say, a, you know, a country that, uh, that we were at war with comes up and fires at the American ship. The Japanese ship can't do anything in that case, even though they're right there and they could assist because they are outside of Japanese waters. They cannot take action against the ship that's firing at the American ship, which is a pretty severe limitation on Japanese sovereignty, actually, uh, even though it's, you know, their own law. But it's it's one of those things that like any other country in a mutual defense treaty arrangement could do that, but the Japanese can't because of their legal situation. So that's one that's currently being under debate right now. The argument against changing it is that uh, there are you know are, are certain elements within Japan politically who feel that oh well that'll get us drawn into a war if you know China and the United States get into a war over Taiwan then. We'll be drawn into it. Well, I, I, I hate to say it, but if if that were to happen, if something like that were to happen, Japan's getting drawn in anyway. It doesn't really matter at that point. Hmm. But you know, at the at the at the lower level, uh, it would allow uh, you know situations like the the example that I just gave that for you know the Japanese to take action if a Allied ship was being fired upon right in front of them, uh, whereas right now they can't. Hmm. Okay, that's that's interesting. And that's it for part one of our talk on the Japanese Self-Defense Force. Be back next time with part two. In the meantime, be sure to head over to SamuraiPodcast.com to get all of our back episodes and also to click on the various links that help us fund the podcast. Just keep in mind that any books that we mention will always be linked there directly. So if you want to pick up any of the books that we talk about at any point, please feel free to go over to SamuraiPodcast.com and find the episode that we talk about it, and you'll see the book link right there. And you'll also see the other myriad of ways that you can help us out. So that's it for this time. Catch you later.